Please rise for the reading of God's Word from Romans, the fifth chapter, verses 1 through 11. Hear now God's Word. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in the hope of, of the glory of God. And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely for a righteous man one will die, yet perhaps for a good man someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. And thus far, the reading of God's word and all God's people said. A couple of comments, one in particular about this text. It's a large text, and we will not be covering all of it today. It's one of those texts that could uh, support many sermons. So we'll be taking parts of this today to look at this. This is uh, the reading for the lectionary today, or one of the readings. The other thing I want to remind you of is at least half of a sermon is you. I've spent a fair amount of time this week, like I do every week, and like pastors do all over the place, working on sermons. Reading, praying, thinking, rewriting, rewriting, and rethinking. And we know that when we get here, at this point, that these are imperfect, because I'm imperfect. But this is really uh, the work of the Spirit. It has to work on me, and that's why I pray over a sermon. But the Spirit also must work in you, because the receiving of a sermon is at least as important as the giving of a sermon. Uh, a friend used to tell me, even a, poor, even a, a, a good student can learn from a poor teacher. So uh, it's... Half of this is on you. Uh, So you should be praying that the Holy Spirit would be at work in you, just as I pray that he'd be at work in me in the preparation of a sermon, that he'd be at work in you in the reception of a sermon. Many people are estranged from one another due to sin. Conflict. Offense is taken. Separation occurs. Separation is a form of excommunication. We're cut off. We're no longer in communion. It's really death. You know people who are frequently not speaking to someone. This is what the Bible, again, calls death. But Isaiah 59.2 says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden His face from you, so that He will not hear. So when sin comes between us and God, or sin comes between us and another person, there's no communion. There's no communication. We can't hear. This estrangement or separation continues with people 
usually because pride will not allow either party to move toward the other party. They're they're waiting on the other person to move first. And so again, there's no peace, no communion, and it's not uncommon for both parties to share some of the blame for the estrangement. This refusal to be reconciled, of course, can go on for years and years. It can even go on past the grave. There is no peace. But our estrangement from God is different because it is one-sided. We offend God, who is perfect and holy, and we did this by our sins And it's our sins alone that stand in the way of peace with Him. Thus, it was Adam and Eve who hid themselves from God when they sinned. Moreover, too often we will not move toward Him to be reconciled. In our sinful pride... We end up preferring death and separation over life and peace with God. The early chapters of Romans have laid the groundwork telling us that both Jews and Gentiles, Jews and Greeks, all mankind is not right with God, and that is summarized in the third chapter of Romans. I want to read a few verses from there, starting in verse 10. So remember, he's argued that uh, the Jews, you've been given the law of God, you've been given his word, but you fell away. The Gentiles who have God's law in their hearts also fell away. So here's the summary. There is none righteous. Let me back up. What then? Are we better than they? Again, he's talking about the Jews. Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written... There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks for God. They have all turned aside. They have have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. When their tongue they have practiced deceit, the poison of asp is under their lips whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And then you're familiar with the very famous verse in chapter 3, uh, verse, uh, verse 23, chapter 3, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. That's the indictment on all mankind. Now I want to remind you, some of this we covered a bit in Sunday school this morning, we are Christians and our commitment is to the Word of God. This is the truth. I'm not embarrassed about any of it. I don't understand every bit of it, but I am not embarrassed about any of it. And we need to stand up and speak the truth. Of course there are people who reject it and resist it, who are embarrassed by it, but we're not. And so we're going to take a look at some of what this passage says today because it is essential. If this is true, and I proclaim to you that it is, and I know that most of you believe that it is, then this is where we take our stand. 
The Westminster Shorter Catechism addresses the effects of sin. Question 17, into what a state did the fall, the original sin, bring mankind? And the answer, the fall brought mankind into an estate of sin and misery. Wherein consists the sinfulness of that estate wherein the man fell? The sinfulness of that estate wherein the man fell consists in the guilt of Adam's first sin, the want or the lack of original righteousness and the corruption of his whole nature, which is commonly called original sin, together with all actual transgressions that proceed from that. So we have a sin nature, and that nature produces sinful acts, sinful thoughts, sinful intents. Verse, uh, question 19, what is the misery of that estate wherein a man fell? All mankind, by their fall, lost communion with God. There's the separation, right? Are under his wrath and curse, and so made liable to all the miseries of this life and to the pains of hell forever. So what's the way back? Is there any possibility of this estranged relationship to God ever being restored? Can you be at peace with Him? How could that happen? What can you do about that? Well, the bad news is there's nothing you can do about that. For to be carnally minded is death, Paul writes, but to be spiritually minded is life and peace because the carnal mind, the fleshly mind, is enmity against God. It's hostile toward God. It's not subject to the law of God, for indeed, uh, it, um, of the law of God, not, uh, for it cannot be. So then those who are in the flesh cannot please God. In our lost condition, in our state of rebellion, we cannot please Him. We don't have the ability to do that. In fact, we're hostile toward Him. We're running from Him. We're hiding from Him. But then there's the good news. The really good news. God moves toward you. Question 20 of the Catechism Did God leave all mankind to perish in the estate of sin and misery? God, having out of his mere good pleasure, from all eternity, elected some to everlasting life, did enter into a covenant of grace to deliver them out of the estate of sin and misery and to bring them into an estate of salvation by a Redeemer. In other words, we cannot save ourselves, but God can save us. As the Apostle John stated it so succinctly in 1 John 4, uh, 9 and 10, and then verse 19, In this the love of God was manifested toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through Him. 
In this is love, not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And that word propitiation means that He takes away the wrath, the just wrath of God. And, and we love Him, verse 19, because He first loved us. He initiated. He moved. Right after Paul declared that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, he says this in verse 24 through 26 of Romans chapter 3, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation, again, removing the wrath, by His blood, through faith, to demonstrate His righteousness Because in his forbearance, God passed over the sins that were previously committed. All the sins that you have previously committed have been passed over because of the propitiating work of Jesus to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that is, God is perfectly just. He can't look the other way when it comes to sin. He can't act like it didn't happen. He is a holy God. That He might be the just, be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus Christ. N.T. Wright describes it this way. As a result of being justified by faith, we are in that, in the old phrase, quote, in a state of grace, a status, a position, where we are surrounded by God's love and generosity. Invited to breathe it it in as our native air. As we do so, we realize that this is what we were made for. That this is what truly human existence ought to be like, and and that is the beginning of something so big, so massive, so unimaginably beautiful and powerful that we almost burst as we think of it. When we stand there in God's own presence, not trembling, but deeply grateful and begin to inhale His goodness, His wisdom, His power, and His joy, we sense that we are being invited to go all the way to become the true reflection of God, the true image bearers, that we were made to be. Paul puts it like this. We celebrate the hope of the glory of God. This is the glory that was lost through the idolatry of sin. According to our text, verses 6 and 7, this is all based on what Jesus did at the very point of our weakness. Not in our strength. Not us at our best. For when we were still without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely a righteous man will, die, will one die, yet perhaps for a good man some would even dare to die. You see, God's love has done everything for us. Verse 8 is the center verse of what I want to talk about today. But God demonstrates His own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. That's about as simple and most powerful, direct declaration of the gospel that I know of. Jesus is the embodiment of God's love. He moved. We love him because he first loved us. You know the hymn, I sought the Lord. And afterward I knew he moved my soul to seek him, seeking me. It was not I that found, O Savior, true. No, I was found of thee. Thou didst reach forth thy hand and mine enfold. I walked and sank not on the storm-vexed sea. T'was not so much that I took hold as thou, dear Lord, on me. In order to reconcile us to himself, God became a man. He stepped down. He condescended to us. The incarnation of the Son of God is spoken of in one of our documents that we hold to, our confessions, the Belgic Confession. Article 18 says this. Now, this is a little bit antiquated language, but listen carefully. You can get this. We confess, therefore, that God did fulfill the promise which he had made to the fathers by the mouth of the holy prophets when he sent into the world at the time appointed by him his own only begotten and eternal Son, who took upon him the form of a servant, became like unto a man, really assuming the true human nature, with all of its infirmities, without sin, being conceived in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary by the power of the Holy Ghost, without the means of man, and did not only assume human nature as to the body, but also a true human soul, that he might be a real man. For since the soul was lost as well as the body, it was necessary that he should take both upon himself to save both. Daniel Hyde comments on this section of the confession. He says, the incarnation, this is a term we so often use in our Christian lingo, that it has become another phase we simply let roll off our tongues all too easily. The incarnation, though, is no mere phrase. It was a climactic, redemptive event. It was a moment in which there was a hushed silence in heaven and on earth as God was doing something He had never done before. And then there was the exuberant praise, we need to understand the Incarnation's significance so that we can apply its benefits daily to our spiritual lives. And this wonder of the Incarnation was expressed by one of the Greek church fathers, uh, Gregory of Nazianzus, who said this, The Word of God Himself, who is before all worlds, the invisible, the incomprehensible, the bodiless, the beginning of the beginning, the light of light, the source of life and immortality, the image of the archetype, the immovable seal, the unchangeable image, the Father's definition and Word came to His own image and took on Him flesh for the sake of our flesh, 
and mingled himself with an intelligent soul for my soul's sake, purifying like by like, and in all points except sin was made man. He came forth then as God with that which he had assumed, one person in two natures. O new commingling, O strange conjunction, the self-existent comes into being. The uncreated is created. That which cannot be contained is contained by the intervention of an intellectual soul mediating between the deity and the corporate of the flesh. And he who gives riches became poor, and he, uh, for he assumes the poverty of my flesh that I may assume the riches of his Godhead. He that is full empties himself. For he empties himself for his glory for a short while that I may share in his fullness. Verse 9 of our text, Romans 5. Now, as, as if that wasn't enough. Then these words, but much more. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that, we shall also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Here's what you need to know. When the final judgment comes, if you're in Christ, you'll be rescued. I know we're moderns and we don't care to think much about uh, such things as final judgment and hell. We're a little, again, as moderns, a little embarrassed about that. We're much too sophisticated and progressive for such old-fashioned superstitions. But let me remind you of something. Truth is not a fad that comes and goes. And dismissing it in your mind does not make it go away. Laughing at judgment and mocking at hell has no effect on reality. The Bible has a great deal to say about the reality of both judgment and hell. Hebrews 9, 27 and 28, And as it is appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment so Christ was offered once to bear the sins of many. All those truths are packed into that sentence. If we're saved, we need to know what it is we're saved from. Jesus, the one who said He is the way, the truth, and the life, here's what He said, Luke 12, 44, 45. My friends, Jesus said, do not be afraid of those who kill the body and after that have no more than they can, that they can do, but I will show you whom you should fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has the power to cast into hell. Yes, I say to you, fear him. This is no precious moments, Jesus. One more. From Jesus, John 5, 25 through 30, most assuredly. Sometimes your translation says, truly, truly. Most assuredly. 
I say, Jesus says, I say to you, he who hears my words and believes them in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted to the Son to have life in himself and has given him authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this, for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth, those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. I can of myself do nothing. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is righteous, because I do not seek my own, but will seek the will of my Father who sent me. Wow. So let me cite our text once more, and you tell me, how big a deal is this? Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath through him. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved through his life. And not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. So this has some powerful implications about how we live. Paul has told us in this letter that God's redemptive work includes the past, the present, and the future. In chapter 2, he told us that in the future there will come a day when God will judge all human secrets and the judgment will be entirely just, entirely fair, and entirely impartial. Of course, if this isn't true, then you're all free to disregard it without cost. Since your life will end and everything that was you will be redispensed into a meaningless universe. But if it is true, it should send shivers down your spine. Then in the latter part of chapter 3 and all of chapter 4, Paul addresses the present. He argues that when people believe in God's good news about Jesus, that they are assured that they are that they already belong to the covenant family and the people who and they are people whose sins are forgiven who have already received the verdict of not guilty from God's court how can i be declared not guilty when i still have the rest of my life to live and i'm going to commit some more sins how can i be given this assurance that the future verdict is already known Well, the present verdict, which will be affirmed in the future, is not based on me. That's the good news. It is based securely on what God has already done in the death of his son. When we were weak, helpless sinners, verse 6 and 8, God demonstrated how much he loved us. And if he loved us that much, then, as verse 9 tells us, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. 
N.T. Wright comments on verse 10. After all, God did the unthinkable thing in sending His Son to die for us while there was nothing whatever to commend us to Him. And indeed, everything to make Him revolted by us when, in other words, we were His enemies. Verse 10. Now that we are His friends, reconciled to Him in the manner described in verses 1 and 2, God is not about to abandon us after all. The argument thus takes the form familiar in various systems of logic, not least the Jewish ones, of a how much more. If God has done the difficult thing, how much more is he likely to complete the job by doing the easy part? From start to finish, we are vessels of mercy and objects of God's love. As Paul will uh, explain or expand on this in Romans 9. Verses 22 through 24. What if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much long suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. And in a thing, kind of a homey way, uh, Charles Spurgeon uh, said this. He, he first spoke about John Newton, who wrote the hymn Amazing Grace. John Newton uh, used to tell a whimsical story and laughed at it, too, of a good woman who said, in order to prove the doctrine of election, ah, sir, the Lord must have loved me before I was born, or else he would not have seen anything in me to love afterwards. And Spurgeon said, I am sure it is true in my case. I believe the doctrine of election because I am quite certain that if God had not chosen me, I should never have chosen him. And I am sure he chose me before I was born or else he never would have chosen me afterwards. And he must have elected me for reasons unknown to me, for I never could find any reasons in myself why he should have looked upon me with special love. So I am forced to accept that great biblical doctrine. This isn't a doctrine anyone can be indifferent about. You you cannot have felt his infinite love and be passive. You cannot have peace with God and shrug your shoulders. And so I'd say to you this morning, If you are unmoved by this, you are in trouble. Finally, verse 11, and not only that, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received the reconciliation. Do you know what you've been given in Christ? Of all the things in this life that move me emotionally... There is nothing like a true reconciliation between estranged persons. Luke 15.10, likewise, I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. Again, but God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners... 
Christ died for us. I'll close with this quote from Robert Capon. The life of grace is not an effort on our part to achieve a goal we set for ourselves. It is a continually renewed attempt simply to believe that someone else has done all the achieving that is needed and to live in relationship with that person, whether we achieve or not. If that doesn't seem like much to you, you're right, it isn't. And as a matter of fact, the life of grace is even less than that. It's not even our life at all, but the life of that someone else rising like a tide in the ruins of our death. Let's pray. Gracious Father, thank you for demonstrating your great love for us and sending your Son to die for us. Indeed, at the very point of our weakness, when we had no strength to save ourselves, Christ died for us. So that now your wrath was propitiated and we now stand with access and hope. Since your love has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us, we can now glory. Even in our tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to you through the death of your son, much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. And not only that. But we do indeed rejoice in you through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received the reconciliation. Amen. Ephesians chapter 2, again Paul writing, And you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins. You were dead. I was dead. In which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all all once conducted ourselves in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. And then here's those great words, but. If it had stopped there, we're sunk. But God. Wow who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, ill-deserved favor, you have been saved. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved, and that's not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works that no one should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And before we come to the table, one more Capon quote. He just says it so much better than I can. The Reformation was a time when men went blind, staggering, drunk, 
because they had discovered in the dusty basement of of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace. A bottle after bottle of pure distillate of Scripture. One sip of which would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The word of the gospel, after all those centuries of trying to lift yourself into heaven by worrying about the perfection of your bootstraps, suddenly turned out to be a flat announcement that the saved were home free even before they started. Grace has to be drunk straight. No water, no ice, and certainly no ginger ale. Neither goodness, nor badness, nor flowers that bloom in the spring of super spirituality could be allowed to enter into the case. Amen. O Lord, as we go forth from this place, having met with you, and having again worshipped in the assembly of your people, we delight and rejoice in your presence. We also pray that your grace will now be evident in us, so that we might glorify you and serve you acceptably with reverence and fear. Perfect in us that which is lacking, and increase our faith. Bless now our resting and our feasting, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. These things I have spoken to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. Jesus said, I have overcome, I have overcome the world. Amen.